uh, this week, at the beginning of the week, I was walking through my study and I saw this slim little volume on the uh, bookcase that I haven't read in probably, well, nearly 20 years, probably 19 years or so. Uh, it was published in 1973 by a guy named Derek Prince. The title of the book is Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. And I pulled it off the shelf and I opened it up and on the first page, there is the reproduction word for word of a proclamation from one of our presidents in America in another era in one of the darkest moments of our history. In fact, someone would argue probably the darkest moment of our history. And this president called the nation to prayer. I just want to read this to you and just, just tell, just kind of sense, what do you feel in your heart when you hear this? Here's what he wrote. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duties of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord." And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subject to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sin to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in number, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own intoxicated with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God that made us it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness now therefore in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all people to abstain on that day from the ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by divine teaching that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high 
and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness thereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Abraham Lincoln. I read that this week and I wondered, do I live in the same country as that guy did? I don't even hear preachers talk like that today, much less presidents. And what was he calling to? He was calling them to believe there is an overruling power and we do need to repent. But if we do, we can have confidence. We can have hope that there is forgiveness. You know what he was doing? He was asking for the nation to devote themselves to prayer. And we started the season off, this year off, with, with a text that the, script, the Lord gave us out of the scriptures, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We've been going over it this week, in the last couple of weeks actually. It says this, it's talking about the early church disciples who were full of and led by the Holy Spirit. It says about them these words, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we, we said the last couple of weeks, this is our outline of the year. Last year, or last week, we began talking about being devoted to prayer and how in Acts chapter 4, how the early church prayed. And we learned a little bit about what it means to be devoted to prayer and how to pray. I want to keep going with that today. My goal is very simple today. My goal is to motivate us to devote ourselves to prayer. Pretty simple. I just My goal today is that something happens and you leave here with something churning on the inside that you want to devote yourselves to. I'm going to call us up, if you will, me too, into prayer. A number of years ago, and my father gave me an article, um, and uh, I took it back into my study, and I sat down. Uh, it was by Jack Hayford. And has this ever happened to you? You sit down and you read, and it's like you read a sentence, and it reaches up and slaps you in the face. At least that's what it feels like, right? First sentence of this article by Jack Hayford read, and I quote, mobilizing the prayer life of a congregation is unquestionably the most important task facing a church leader. I read that again. Wait a second. Mobilizing the prayer life of a congregation is unquestionably the most important task facing a church leader. And it kind of struck me. Now, I want you to know that I believe that my primary responsibility as a pastor is to feed the sheep, okay? That is, that's, that, that is the job description of a pastor, feed the sheep, right? Feed the flock, preach the word. But it hit me, the reason the Lord is really directing us right now, the beginning of this year, to devote ourselves to prayer, to raise the level of prayer in our church is because mobilizing the life of prayer in a church is way more important than just me getting through Acts chapter 2. We're going to get there, but we need to learn in the process that prayer is incredibly important. Sometimes more than we realize. Many years ago, John Bunyan was asked the question, somebody asked him, is there anything else we can do beyond praying? And Bunyan wrote in reply to that, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Did you get that? Until you pray, there's always more you can do. You can't say you've done everything until after you pray because prayer isn't the last-ditch effort when nothing else works. You know, it's not like that, well, we can pray. Oh, has it come to that? We, we, we don't relegate prayer to the end. Prayer is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our response. 
J. Oswald Sanders put it this way, if prayer is meager, it is because we consider it supplemental, not fundamental. In other words, if, if we see something of a hollowness or a lack in our prayer life, it's because we probably view prayer as something that's supplemental to the real call that we have. And it just occurred to me this week as I was thinking about it uh, and meditating on it that, that you will only devote yourself to prayer like the early church did if you believe certain things. Like, like you've got to believe there's a God. If you, if you don't believe there's a God, you're not going to pray, right? In Hebrews 11, Dad pointed this out on Wednesday night. Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anybody who comes to him has to believe he exists. Like that's kind of a requirement. You're not going to pray if you don't believe there's a God. You're also not going to pray if you don't believe he's powerful. You might believe there's a God, but if you don't think he can do anything about anything, you're probably not going to pray. In the famous words of that greatest band of all time, you two, Bono said, stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. And, 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 and look, nothing against little old ladies. I love little old ladies, but God's not a little old lady. And if you think you've got to help God across the road, you probably won't pray. If you don't think he's powerful. If you don't think there's a God, you won't pray. If you don't think he's powerful, you, you're not going to pray. If you don't think he's good, you're not going to pray. If you don't think that he cares enough to hear what you're saying, you won't pray. And then finally, if, if you're going to pray, you have to believe that he will hear our prayer and respond. In other words, you have to believe prayer actually changes things. And see... If you don't really believe those things, you're not going to devote yourself to prayer. And if you don't really believe that prayer is going to make a difference, you're not going to pray. I mean, why should you? But if you do believe those things, and I think most of you do, as I'm saying them, I see you shaking your head and agreeing with me. If you really believe those things, then why don't we devote ourselves to prayer? I would submit that many of us, deep down, if we're really honest, you know, we forget we're at church and actually be honest, you know, we, we really don't believe that last one, that prayer changes things. And often, I, I get it, I, I know it's because, in, it, it, you know, maybe in your past there was a disappointment, there was something you poured yourself out for, and maybe you fasted and you prayed, and it didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. Maybe it didn't happen at all, or maybe it didn't happen when you wanted it to happen or how you wanted it to happen, and you got disappointment, and you allowed that disappointment to get in there and affect what you believe about God. Well, if that's you, I, I really don't have any rebuke for you this morning. I, I really don't. But I do have a truth that I would call you to believe, and I have one point today, okay? And, and, and it's just one. Now, I have six case studies of the one point. <laughs> But it's just one point, one point today, it's very simple, and when I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this because it's so simple, one of you, you know, I, there's going to be a husband lean to his wife and say, does he get paid for this? Um, I, I, it's so simple, but I'm going to tell you, sometimes the most profound things in life are the simple things, right? I, wasn't it Einstein who said, when the solution is simple, God is speaking? I think that might be the case today. Here's the big idea, very simply, prayer shapes history. In fact, will you, will you say that with me? Prayer shapes history. If you don't believe that, you probably won't pray. Now, I want to prove it to you from Scripture because Scripture is the authority. And look, I love philosophy. I love theology. I love theological systems. I do. I love it. Uh, you know, I've studied a lot of that throughout my life. But that's not the authority. The authority is in Scripture. So, so if we can prove from Scripture that prayer shapes history, then we can believe it. And it will fuel 
our prayer life. So let's look at it. Case study number one. I got six case studies. Don't worry. It won't be too long. Well, it might. I make no promises. Okay. Case study number one is Moses in Exodus 32. You guys know the story of Moses? The nation of Israel is in captivity in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And God speaks to Moses and says, I have heard the cry of my people. I have come down. I am going to deliver them. Now go deliver them. And so he goes, you know the whole story, miraculous things happen. There's plagues in Egypt. There's, uh, the, you know, the, the Red Sea gets split. They come out, they're crossing, and they get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain. God gives him what we call the Ten Commandments. He gives him the law of God. He gives him instruction about all sorts of things. And while that is happening, God is giving them this. Down at the bottom of the mountain, Aaron and the rest of the nation of Israel are making a gold calf to bow down and worship. And God says to Moses in Exodus 32, the, and this is almost funny how he, it's not funny because it's judgmental, but it, it's funny how he says it. God says, your people who you brought out of Egypt have made a gold calf in the work. Now, before he said, I have heard the cry of my people and I have come down, I'm going to deliver them. Now they disobey and he says, your people who you brought out of Egypt. It's kind of like Marlene and I have done this before. You know, like with the, if the boys, you know, do something great. Did you see what my son did today? You know, and then I come home and they do something like waterboard each other. And, 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 and Marlene says, do you know what your sons did today? It's, it's basically what God does. And then he says, and it, this is staggering. He says, leave me alone and I'm going to wipe them. I'm going to destroy all of them. I'll make a new nation out of you. And Moses says, Moses prays. He stands in the gap, and, and here's, here, here's his prayer. Lord, don't do that. Don't do that, because what are the Egyptians going to say? They're, 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 you're not going to get glory to your name. And, and they're going to say, look, you, you only brought them out so you could destroy them in the wilderness, and you, you didn't have the power to do Think about your name. And then number two, they quote a promise. He quotes a promise. He says, remember, you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would make their descendants like the sands of the seashore. Remember that when you promised that? And look what happens, Exodus 32, verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Would you agree with me that Moses' prayer shaped history? It actually moved the hand of God, or actually to be more accurate, it stayed the hand of God. Psalm 106 talks about that very event, and it says this, 106, 23, so he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. I, that verse is hard to misunderstand. It's pretty clear the prayer of Moses affected what it changed history. Let me ask you a question. Do you think our prayers could have a similar effect? Is it too bold of me? Is this, is this hubris to think that, that since we're worshiping the same God, since we're praying to the same God that Moses did, and by the way, we got a better covenant. That's what the book of Hebrews says. I mean, I'm really excited actually to get in Hebrews later this year because it talks about we got a better covenant than they had. So if we're praying to the same God and we got a covenant with God even better than he had, is it too much to think that our prayers for our kids or this nation or this church can actually stay the hand of God? I mean, Moses stood in the gap, in the breach, the text says, before God and Israel was spared. There was another time in, in Israel's history 
when there was no one to stand in the gap. In the book of Ezekiel, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but in the book of Ezekiel, here's what God said, chapter 22, verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. Did you, listen, you read that verse. It's very clear. God didn't want to destroy them. He said, I'm looking for, I'm looking for somebody, anybody who'll stand in the gap. Because he didn't want to destroy them. And he found none. Man, I want to be the man standing in the gap. I, when God looks at my family, I want him to see that, that, that there's a man standing in the gap praying for my family. When he looks at our church, I want him to see those of us standing in the gap. When he looks at our nation, I want him to see New Life Church standing in the gap, believing it might actually affect everything. And the other thing, just kind of, this is kind of a side note that you learn from this story, is that intercession can be costly. Because the story goes on, if you read the rest of chapter 32 of Exodus, he goes, you know, God is, you know, it's still kind of like, is he going to destroy him? Is he not? And here's what Moses says. Listen to this. He says, this is Exodus 32, 32. But now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot out of, blot me out of the book you have written. Moses puts himself on the line. Now, God declines Moses' request and says everybody is going to die for their own sin, okay? And ultimately, if, if you read Exodus 32 correctly, it's pointing us to Jesus Christ who not only offered to give his life, but did give his life to sacrifice. But notice here that intercession for Moses was costly. And sometimes when I take an inventory of my own prayer life, I realize that I want to pray uh, as long as it's easy. I, I, I want to pray as long as it doesn't infringe on my, you know, football game. I, I want to pray as long as it doesn't take too much time. I want to pray as long as I don't have to feel too deeply and it doesn't mess with my heart. But sometimes intercession is costly. But it's costly because it's significant. See, significant world-changing things don't come cheap. It shapes history. That's case study number one. And some of you are going, we got six of these? Don't worry. The other five are shorter. Case study number two is David. You guys know the story of David. Uh, in 1 Samuel, there, he's going out to bring food to his brothers. And there's this Goliath, this giant named Goliath from the Philistines. And he's talking trash, you know. And, and David goes to the king and is like, I'll whoop him. I took care of wild animals. And, and I'll take this uncircumcised Philistine. And you might be wondering, why did he bring that fact up? It's because he didn't have a covenant with God. That's what he's saying. I got a covenant with God. So I'll go out there. You know, if I, he's, in, it, even people who don't know the Bible know this story because it's the quintessential underdog story of David and Goliath, right? It happens. Everything's ha everybody's happy until people start singing songs that say, Saul, who was the king, has killed his thousands, and David, his tens of thousands. That wasn't good for Saul. He got a little jealous, as sometimes is the case for kings, and he got jealous, and he's going after David. David then goes to a place called Keilah. This is in, in, in 1 Samuel 23. I'll just read it to you. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to 
besieged David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod. Now, for those of you who may not know, the ephod was one of the priestly garments that was worn. It had certain stones in it, uh, and it was used to inquire of the Lord. Verse 10, David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. Now, notice what happens here, right? David says, bring the ephod, we're going to pray. He prays, he talks to the Lord and says, if I stay here, is Saul going to come? Yes, he will. That's the answer. And will the people of Keilah hand me over to Saul if I stay here? And the Lord says, yes, they will. So David leaves. Would you agree with me that prayer changed history? Especially considering the fact that Jesus came through the lineage of who? David. Like history was shaped by this. Because apparently God not only knows the future, he knows all possible futures. Right, right, right. right? Like, you know, I, I'll just confess my sin right now. I'm, I'm a Marvel fan, okay? Uh, I like Marvel movies. Uh, we just finished watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., okay? Seven seasons on Netflix. Pretty clean for the most part. Um, and and I li- you get to the last couple seasons, and they're doing all this time travel. But it's not only time travel, it's kind of multiverse theory. So sometimes they're going forward and backward in time. But sometimes they're going sideways to other timelines, you know, in different multiverses, and, and it's all, and it's very confusing. And sometimes I'm just watching this, and I'm like, which timeline are we in? You know, where we, what, what time, what date? And, but here's the deal. God didn't get confused by the timeline. He knows everything you're going to, and he knows what would happen if you did something else. If you do A, he knows what's going to happen. If you do B, he knows what's going to happen. If you do C, he knows what's going to happen. If you do, and he knows what you're going to do. So here's my point. It, it, do you think, once again, do you think it's possible that this could happen with you in prayer? Is it po- See, in prayer, David saw what was going to happen, and he changed. Is it possible that while you're in prayer, God could show you something that you can't see right now? That you could take action on? I mean, do we serve the same God or not? Case study number three, Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, you may know of Hezekiah. Uh, those of you, I know we got some Bible readers in here in the Old Testament. He was a king of Judah. And uh, he had a couple stories where Hezekiah prayed and it changed history. In the first one, and you can find these in, in Isaiah 37, 38, as well as 2 Kings 19 to 20, pretty much covers the same ground. In the first one, the Assyrian king named Sennacherib is going to come and attack Jerusalem and Hezekiah. Okay, and he's coming to the attack, and he sends his field marshal, you know, out to talk some trash. He goes up to the, there's the people sitting up on the wall, and he says, look, my king's going to come in and whoop y'all. And this is ancient Near Eastern trash talk. He says, you're going to have to eat your own filth and drink your own urine. Okay, and don't say my gun will, you know, listen, has any other god uh, saved anybody from Sennacherib, king of Assyria? No, he hasn't. In fact, your god's the one that told my king to come and whoop you. This is like some serious trash talk here. 
So God speaks to King Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah and says, don't worry, his attention is going to be diverted by something else. And it does happen. Something else happens. So Sennacherib leaves, but he's over there dealing with this situation. He writes a letter back to Hezekiah saying, I know I had to leave for a minute, but I'm coming back to whoop you. And he's, but he says some nasty stuff in it. The letter gets sent to Hezekiah. Hezekiah takes it before the Lord. And the text says he laid it out before the God. We were just, Sammy and I were talking about this last week when we were preaching on um, uh, Acts chapter 4, where it said that they, the early disciples said, Lord, consider the threats. Look at them. There, that's it. And that was their whole talk about the problem. What does Hezekiah do? He takes the letter. He lays it down. Lord, there it is. Would you do something about it? And then here's what happens. Isaiah 37, verse 21, the word of the Lord comes through Isaiah to him, and he says, this is what it says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed. Sennacherib's not even going to enter the city. He's not even going to shoot an arrow against it. In fact, he's not even going to build a rampart to get up to the city. You know why? Because I will defend the city. I will save the city for my sake and for my servant David's sake. What's he saying? Because you prayed, everything's going to change. And that night, the text says the angel of the Lord went out and slew 185,000 Assyrian warriors. Yikes. This is one angel. But think of it. Just think of this for a second. Because you prayed, Hezekiah, the strongest king in the known world is gone. Off the scene of history, exit stage left. Because you have prayed, Hezekiah, the witness of my covenant love for David and my glory has gone through the nations. Because you prayed, Hezekiah, the world knows that I alone am God. Because you prayed, Hezekiah, 185,000 enemy soldiers are dead on the plains of Judah. Because one man prayed. Is it safe to say that Hezekiah's prayers changed history? (laughs) And do we dare to believe? (sighs) Do we dare to believe there's that much power in prayer? Do we dare to even believe that? Listen, we can affect this world in prayer, that we have this kind of authority in prayer. I mean, I'm I'm sad to say that I think there are some people who could be forgiven, some outsiders that could be forgiven if they came and looked at my life and saw how much time I have spent in prayer. They might actually be forgiven for thinking that maybe I don't really believe this. But there is a power in prayer that God has invited us into. There's a second story, uh, this one less happy, uh, although that last story wasn't very happy if you're an Assyrian. But this story is even less happy for for the people of God because in in the very next chapter, Hezekiah is told, look, you're going to die. Get your house in order. Hezekiah cries out to God. You remember this? He cries out to God with tears. Lord, spare me. And this is what happens. Isaiah 38, verse 5, God says, I have heard your prayer, seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. So that prayer changed things, right? He had 15 more years. But it didn't just affect him because, you see, in those 15 years, he had a son that was born. His name was Manasseh. And he turned out, if you've read your Bible, you know that he turned out to be one of the more wicked kings in history, certainly in the history of Judah. I mean, I I hope you'll forgive me for saying this, but you think our presidents are bad? 
this guy was wicked. He built altars to Baal, who was the storm god, the Canaanite storm god, and he put up an Asherah pole uh, that Ahab had done. Asherah was the consort of Baal, the fertility goddess and the goddess of the sea, and he built those altars to false gods in the temple of Yahweh. And if that wasn't enough, he sacrificed his own son in the fire to worship them. He practiced sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. All of that is in 2 Kings 21. You can look it up later and read it if you want. And, here, and here's another one that's not actually in the text. It's hinted at in Hebrews. But tradition says that he had the prophet Isaiah sawed in two. What am I saying? Not a good guy. But Hezekiah's prayer affected history. Case study number four is the potter in Jeremiah 18. In, in, in the story of uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet. Uh, he's one of my favorite prophets, uh, and there's reasons for that, but I won't go into it right now. But God tells him to go down to the potter's house, and, and he goes down to the potter's house, and the potter is working on the potter's wheel there. He's making something, and there's a, there's a flaw. There's, a, something, there's something in there that mars the clay, and so what he was going to make, he's not going to make now. So he takes it down, and he makes something else. And here's what the Lord said, Jeremiah 18, verse 6. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. So what's God saying here? It's very interesting because often, uh, and in the New Testament even, the, the picture of the potter and the clay is basically, look, how are you going to question God? He's the potter, you're the clay. But the original use of this was God was saying, look, I'm the potter, you're the clay. So if I say judgment's coming, but you guys repent and turn away from it, I'm the, I can change my mind. I can change your destiny. Why? Because I'm the potter, you're the clay. And the other way, if I said the blessing's coming and you live in sin and you turn around and, and, and you worship other idols and false gods, I can change my mind too. Why? Because I'm the potter. You're the clay. The biggest picture of this is in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Remember this? Jonah uh, was, was told by God, go preach in Nineveh, which, by the way, was the capital city of Assyria, right? Assyria is making a lot of appearances this morning. And he said, go pre preach that judgment's coming. And so he decides, I want to do that. So he runs away from God, which historically is not a good idea. And, and in fact, if there's anybody here today, you just, you're here, but you're running away from God, I just want to tell you, there's a lot of us in our room, in this room right now, that tried that. There's a bunch of us here, we tried to run away from God. Don't work. So save yourself some sorrow, come on back to the Lord. But that's a side note. In the story of Jonah, he goes, you know, there's a storm, uh, he gets thrown over, over into the ocean and the water there, and there's a great fish, the text says, that comes, swallows him, he's in the belly of the fish, he prays, which, what else are you going to do? And I don't know what else there is to do in the belly of a fish. He prays, God has him spit out, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches, and it's not turn or burn, it's just burn. 
This, there's no grace in his preaching. It's just, hey, God's going to burn you up. Praise God, I'm here to see it. That, that's it. That's the whole sermon. And what happens? You know what the text says? The Ninevites believed God. And all the way from the king all the way down, they repented. They turned to God. And the scripture says that the Lord had compassion on them. So everybody's happy, right? Oh, no, not Jonah. He was like, I knew you were gracious and compassionate. <laughs> Here's my point. If the Ninevites can repent, what do you think can happen in our nation? Look, I know there's, there's a lot of good and evil in our history. I know that. There's a lot of good and evil in the world today in our nation. But if we repent, if we turn to the Lord, there is hope yet. There is hope yet. You know why? Because prayer changes history, shapes history. Case study number five is Jesus in Gethsemane. And I won't even set this one up because you guys know this. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what Mark 14, 32 and following reads. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. This is Jesus now. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is our Lord Jesus who's saying this. Let me just say, if there's somebody here right now who just feels overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus knows how you feel. He's been there. And do you know why he went there? For me. For you. He didn't deserve it. I did. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he, he fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, that this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So, so here's Jesus in the garden, and he's praying. And, just, you know, side note here, the fact that Jesus prayed and took time to teach us how to pray means we probably should do it. But look what he's praying. Look at this. This is, this is extraordinary. Abba, take this cup. I mean, stop the music. Stop the parade. I want to get off the ride. But not what I will. What you will. And listen to me. That prayer changed all of human history. The gospel is here today because Jesus prayed that prayer in the garden. You know, the biblical story is that Adam and Eve were put in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and there was there and there was a tree they weren't supposed to touch and, and or supposed to partake of, and, and they disobeyed, and through that came sin and death to the human race. Later, Paul says, the second, not the second Adam, the last Adam, get the word right, Tim, the last Adam in the garden got it right this time. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, they failed. He's in the garden and he says, not my will, but yours. And then he's taken to a tree where he gives his life and he conquers sin and death and the grave and hell for us. And you know what that means? That means that I'm, already, I'm accepted now. 
I'm adopted into the family of God. I get to call God Abba, Father. I have been declared righteous and justified. Why? Because of this prayer of Jesus, not my will, but yours. He doesn't. Listen, and it wasn't just human history that was changed by this prayer because Romans 8 suggests that all creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Do you get that? Jesus' obedience, saying yes to Abba, Father, changed not only human history, but all of creation. And in fact, we find out in Revelation 21 and 22 that there's coming a day, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and every tear is going to be wiped away and every wrong is going to be made right and there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more cancer and no more pain. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. Why is that? Because Jesus said yes in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Doesn't that just make you want to say thank you, Jesus? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Last case study, and we'll be done. Is the end. I'm just going to call it the end. It's Revelation chapter 8. Revelation 8, I believe, the way I read the book of Revelation, is referring to something still future from where we are now. And, and look, one is always wise <laughs> to be humble when preaching out of the book of Revelation. Okay, I'm just going to say, well, one is always wise to be humble. What am I saying? Um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's always wise to be humble. But when you're preaching Revelation, you should be careful and be humble uh, about your interpretation. But I view this as still a future coming event. Revelation 8 verse 3, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Get this now. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. This is where the prayers of God are burning, or the prayers of the saints are burning before God. He scoops it up, and he hurls it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, did you get this picture? Make, make, just let this in for a second. Because this will affect, I think, how you pray. The altar is burning with millions and millions of prayer. The people singing and praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mounting up over the centuries. Think of this. Peter, John, Paul in the first century praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that prayer is burning on the altar. The, the, the early church uh, leaders who were persecuted under Nero, who lit up Christians and burned them on fire to light up his gardens. Those Christians praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the, the Christians who went through the persecution under Diocletian, where he was getting the scriptures and burning them, thought he got all the scriptures, had a coin minted saying, the worship of the gods is restored. Those Christians praying that. The Christians from the Dark Ages, the medieval period, during the Reformation praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the Christians around the, the birth of our nation in the 18th century, the great awakenings of the 18th and the 19th centuries. The great Chinese Christians in the 20th century who, where the church was growing at staggering rates even though the government had a goal to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. Those Christians praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
all the way up to the 21st century at New Life Church in Louisville, Kentucky, the prayers of you and me saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the prayers built up and mounted over the centuries and the angel filled the censer with the flame of those burning prayers and he threw it on the earth and the final victory of God came. Listen, whatever else Revelation 8 is teaching us, and there are other things it's teaching, but at minimum, it's teaching those who are going through persecution, those of you facing adversity, here's what happens in heaven as a result of our prayers, and that affects what happens on the earth. The prayers of the ages bring the victory of God. Not one single cry for the coming of Jesus and the victory of his kingdom is ever wasted. Not one. They all count. They're burning on the altar. Listen to me, you guys. Not one tear you have ever shed, not one prayer you have ever prayed for your marriage is worthless. Not one. They all count. And I know, I know some of you, some of you had some sleepless nights as you wept for and prayed for your kids who are away from the Lord. I want you to know every single tear counted. Every prayer is on the altar of God burning before the Lord. Every one of them counts. Some of you have prayed for this, for this church. I know I have. I've had sleepless nights praying for you guys, being concerned for our church, seeking God for our church. And let me tell you something, not one minute of sleep I gave up was ever worthless. It all counts. Every tear shed, every prayer prayed, it counts. Those prayers are never wasted. They're burning on the altar of God. And you know what? I, I think about this a lot. I think about some of the prayer warriors. In our church, you know, in the last 40 plus years, we've had some prayer warriors here. Oh, we've had some prayer warriors here at this church who are the last 40 plus years who have sought God and prayed. And you know what's interesting? Some of them have gone on to be with the Lord. But you know what? I can still agree with them in prayer. Those prayers, I mean, they're gone on to be with the Lord. And, and, and I'm not, listen, we're not talking about having saints intercede for you. But their prayers are still alive, burning on the altar of God. So when I join my voice and say, your kingdom come, your will be done, I'm agreeing with them in prayer. I'm agreeing with Jesus in prayer. I mean, there have been times when, when, when we've had prayer warriors. And we used to have the prayer room back in the other, before we built this auditorium, we had it back in the other. And I remember there was one time, dad tells a story, of the prayer room was right above his office and, and it felt like the ceiling was about to fall in. So he goes upstairs and he looks and, and there's, I don't know, three or four ladies and they're laying on their face before God and they're pounding the, you know, the ground. And he's, his office is right below them. They're pounding, they're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God only knows what good has come to you and myself because of people like that praying. And we can add to that. Revelation 8, among other things, encourages us not to give up praying because even when we can't see it, things are happening. Something is happening when you pray. And those prayers are burning on the altar of God and, and what Revelation 8 is teaching us is listen, the end is coming. We win. Amen. So let's pray. I, I, I've given you now six biblical examples and case studies. Uh, I could have given more, but we'd be here all day. Uh, I, I could have also talked to you about biblical examples in history. Um, 
there are a lot. Here's one that just hit me this week, I, and I have a, a bunch of them that I could give you. But here's one that just hit me this week. I, I, I kind of, I'm a fan of history. I like history. Um, and there, on Netflix, there's some um, colored versions, like where they've gone back and add color to black and white footage from World War II, and, and they're documentaries. Uh, and it just reminded me of something that happened at Dunkirk. This was May of 1940. Uh, Churchill had just become the Prime Minister of England, uh, and, uh, the United Kingdom, and uh, the British Expeditionary Force was trapped at Dunkirk. They made a movie about this a few years ago. Um, and uh, so the, the, the Nazis had them pinned down. They're at Dunkirk, and there was something like 350 or 360,000 troops. It was basically the entire British Army, at least the British Expeditionary Force, okay? They're captured, at, I mean, they're not captured, they're, they're pinned in at Dunkirk. And so, and this is the part that, that, that most historians will not tell you, but in that time, the King of England, who I think was George VI, is that right? George VI at the time, he called for a national day of prayer. As this happens, and as England is praying, for some reason, inexplicably, Hitler calls his panzer tank troops to stop. He halts them. I mean, they were, they were just going to mow right through. I mean, there was nothing that the soldiers could do against these, the, these panzer tanks. And for whatever reason, Hitler calls and says, stop, for two days. At the same time, a clouds came in covering over Dunkirk, and so the Luftwaffe, which was the, the German Air Force, couldn't fly and strafe and bomb for two days. So the naval ships were able to come over, and get, but not just naval ships, they got just running, people who had a boat big enough to get some people on it. They would just, civilians, they would get boats and come on over. And do you know, Churchill was hopeful that they would get 40 or 50,000 men out. They got 340,000 men out, and it affected the rest of the war. Now, look, you go watch on the History, History Channel or whatever. They're not going to say prayer had anything to do with that. But do you think it's possible? Uh, yes. I mean, come on. Look, I, the big idea is really simple today. Prayer shapes history. <laughs> or in the words of Walter Wink, history belongs to the intercessors.